Hi, this is Catherine Losota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event I founded at LIC Bar in April 2015 in Long Island City, Queens, New York. In this episode of the podcast, we are going back to Valentine's Day, February 14, 2017, with our guests Jason Diamond, Kelly Luce, and Sarah Micah. In this episode of the podcast, you're going to hear the readings from that event. And because we're so proud to be in Queens, I do ask each of our readers to share an anecdote about Queens before they read from their work, so you'll hear that in this episode. If you want to hear the panel discussion from the February 14th, 2017 event, just listen to our next episode. So let's get started with the readings, beginning with Sarah Micah. We're going to kick off with Sarah Micah. Sarah Micah! Sarah Micah's stories have appeared in a public space, Brick, Guernica, American Short Fiction, and Pan America. She's a former fiction fellow at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. She recently moved from Woodside, Queens, to Providence, Rhode Island. Cities I've Never Lived In was published in 2016 by Gray Wolf Press. Welcome, Sarah. I didn't quite figure out which chair and mic combo I wanted to use. This is good, right? Do I want to sit? I'm going to try sitting at the side. <laughs> that is what is important these days. Um, I, I lived in New York for about five years. I've, when I came here, I thought I was going to live here forever. Um, so it's funny now to come as someone who used to live here. Um, I lived in Brooklyn for most of it. I lived in Queens for the last two years. Um, and, you know, I was trying to think of a good Queen story, and I feel like I don't have one. Like, it was one of the mo- more uneventful two years of my life. It was just sort of stable. Like, I, I had a one-bedroom apartment. I lived in Woodside, and I, like, worked. Um, and then I feel like I spent half the time on the 7 train. So that would be, like, a year spent on the 7 train, which is probably actually, like, not that far of an exaggeration. And to get here from Grand Central, I had to take the 7 train. I had this moment when I looked it up. And I was like, is there any other train I could take? Just, I can't, like, I can't. And I was like, it's just one stop, you can do it. Um, I'm gonna read, uh, I'm kind of excited tonight because I'm not gonna read from my book. And my book came out about a year ago, and this is my first time not reading for it. I've been traveling, reading for the book. It's called Cities I've Never Lived In. It's a collection of stories. But I'm gonna read from something that I wrote um, after the book was published. It's a short story called The Kindness of the Parking Appeals Office. Um, it, it's going to be put out by um, Los Angeles Review of Books. And I'll, I'll, be, I'll just read from a few pages. And you guys can hear me okay? It's a small room. Last week, I went into Manhattan to try to get out of a parking ticket. This involved going to a window to get a number, and then to another window to have the number validated, and then another window to give them my number. After that, has anyone else done this? <laughs> after that, after that, I sat in a variety of chairs, unsure what I was waiting for, and then the woman who came for me expressed frustration that I didn't see her coming. I followed her into a small room and showed her my photograph. She smiled and told me to wait outside. I sat in the same chair that I had been in before, then was told to wait somewhere else. Finally, my name was called, and I was told I'd have to pay the ticket. There turned out to be a way to protest the results, so I went up an escalator, still clutching the photo of my car parked next to a fire hydrant. The photo showed the hydrant obscured by trash bags. 
though the top of the hydrant did peek out just a little. I regretted not getting a better photograph. Had the woman in the office spoken, she could have argued that she could see the hydrant. She could have also said that I had staged the photograph, that to get out of my ticket, I had filled trash bags and surrounded a hydrant with them. And I could see how my reasonable reply just wouldn't have worked. I had thought her smile, her amusement, and my nervousness had seemed real and human, and I thought that she worked all day in the room hearing arguments. And so I decided not to further tire her, but to say simply, instead, gently, what had happened. After protesting my protest, I was disappointed to learn there wasn't another set of escalators and protestations. Instead, they told me a letter would be sent with a court date. I was concerned I wouldn't be able to make it because of a planned trip. There was no way to know if I would be available for the date they were perhaps even then mailing me, though I wanted very much to attend. It's a relief sometimes to see that everything is decided, that they have seen all the photographs of fire hydrants already. There were systems to dispatch me easily. Well then, I would be dispatched easily. I would not, no matter what, break down in tears over having no money to pay. I imagine for that, of all things, they were prepared. Afterward, I looked for a pizza place I had gone to weeks before. To cheer myself, I had already decided to get ginger ale. The place had been across from the temp agency. The week before, I had gone to that agency and filled out forms, making updates, talking to people who came in the room. And then otherwise, for a good deal of time, I looked at the furniture. I almost asked if they would recommend a pizza place and then had been glad I hadn't because there was one across the street. And I had sat there at the window, knowing if they had seen me then, tired, drinking soda from a can with a straw rising and falling, they would realize, if they hadn't realized it already, that I wasn't fit to work for their agency. <laughs> but the pizza place wasn't there, and I couldn't remember where the temp agency had been, if it was that building on the corner, Though I don't remember it being that nice, the furniture hadn't been that nice. The agency never called with a position, and soon I'd have to tell them I won't be able to work because of all my travels. Where I live at the edge of the city, there's a small park. Surrounding it is a grocery store, a cafe, some storefronts, and a bar with an unused back room. The park has the elegance of a garden in a decaying estate. There are two dog runs, one for gentle dogs and one for dogs on leashes. And during the summer, there's a farmer's market. The park marks my walk. When I walked by last week, there was an old man painting a storefront. He wore faded clothes in putty colors and had soft fading hair. And his expression itself seemed to be dissolving. Later, when I walked by, it was as if the whole front of the building was whitewash, but even that was too determinant of a color. The man was no longer there, and it was as if he had disappeared and the storefront was also on the verge of disappearing. If someone were to ask what is home, I would say it's the park and the different paths I take when I walk. I like when passing the bus stop to look at the people waiting. I like forgetting it's a bus stop and seeing people stand there in a way so rarely done standing sad and expectant in the middle of the sidewalk. They look like they don't want to be there, and yet they're there all the same. I see them, then the pigeons make a tremendous flap. 
Further down, there's a street line with black trees that arc together at the top, so it seems as if you're entering a forest. When I see it, I wish that I lived there and that I wouldn't have to walk away. Or I'm glad I live on a different street, so I only see the trees occasionally, always forgetting until the discovery again that they're there. A man has begun talking to me at the library. He wears a black beret and has a manner that's quite kind. Last week, he pointed to an article in the Times that said, no one cares that they're raping people. Here in the article, no one cares. 8,000 of them in the military, and they tell me to go someplace else to be quiet. Or another day, he said he was a history teacher. The layers of fat around his features is perhaps what gives him the appearance of kindness. All this is not very much. It's small lives we live. When we say we are away from home, what do we mean? Even here, certainly, I am not home. But when I'm traveling and away from home, I suppose this is the place I mean. I can't think of another. I'll just read a little bit, let's see. I don't know. Read on a high, yeah, they wanna come in from the cold. I'll just try to like, skip over a few plot elements. We'll just try to follow up. Other things happen. Oh, maybe we'll, we'll just conclude with the ticket here. Yeah, we'll just skip all the other spots. And we'll go back to the ticket. It turns out I'll be able to argue the ticket after all. The summons arrived in the mail, was there when I got back this afternoon. The date is for a time before my travels. A part of me had hoped to miss it. I know I'll be found guilty again, still I'm right about the fire hydrant. Within the range of what is reasonable, I am right, so I'll go quietly and behave admirably when they find me guilty again. They say on the notice that I must arrive on time, well certainly, I will be early. Perhaps I should tell them about my travels, the good fortune that I was able to come at all. I'll tell them I plan on going to many cities, that I am about to set out where the city is my home, and so they, they too, are where I'm from. I might say, this moment is my leave-taking, my farewell, standing before you, the picture of a fire hydrant and trash bags in hand. Thank you. <laughs> Give it up for Sarah. That was awesome. Um, I know we skipped over all the stuff that happened and went back to the ticket, but it's really amazing the way Sarah's stories kind of like weave in and out of these thoughts and these places and they all kind of connect. And you can see that in all of her stories in the collection, which are amazing. Also, I always get a ginger ale as like a pick me up. And then that damn straw that like does the thing with the up and down in the can makes it feel so cheap. Pitiful in ways you don't want to be exactly. I'm like, I got this to feel better. Um, so that was great. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm sorry you had to take the seven train. <laughs> so here is something that I need to tell you guys about, like right now. This is the magic silver box. Okay. See, it's silver. It's magic. It's a box. Uh, what we do is uh, there are some pieces of paper and some pens on the table next to the books and the candy over here. And at intermission, think now, because at intermission, 
you can write a question on one of those pieces of paper anonymously, put it in the box, and during the panel discussion, if I pull your question out of the box, you get a prize. What? <laughs> you guys, they're really good prizes. Um, and you should be aware, you don't know, I'm so classy, I have like paper products falling out of me. You should know that you don't know who's gonna get your question. So it can't be specific to one author. It has to be something that any one of these guys could answer. Could be really embarrassing or not. I'm just saying, whatever you want. No, I'm, I'm not gonna embarrass you guys. Maybe. All right, magic silver box. So think about your questions. Also, just wanna point out that we have always some lovely, um, lovely prizes donated by local queen business, Queen's businesses. But tonight, we also have a special prize it's a one-year subscription to a public space. <laughs> what? Thank you, a public space. Starting with this issue, which you get to take home with you tonight. Moving on to reader number two. Kelly Luce. Is that the right way to pronounce it? Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Kelly Luce is the author of Three Scenarios in Which Hana Sasaki Grows a Tale, which won Forward Review's 2013 Editor's Choice Prize for Fiction. After graduating from Northwestern University with a degree in cognitive science, guys, she probably answered questions really well, um, Luce moved to Japan, where she lived and worked for three years. She's a contributing editor for Electric Literature, and a 2016-17 fellow at Harvard's Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Her debut novel, Pull Me Under, which is over here on the table as well, was published in 2016 by FSG. Let's welcome Kelly to the stage. Should I also sit? No. It might stand. It needs to be taller. And you can make it taller. Thank you, magic man. Okay. All right. Uh, I have to talk about Queens. I arrived in Queens two hours ago for the first time in my life. It's uh, really wonderful so far. It's going great. Uh, I'm staying with my boyfriend in a hotel. And uh, so the probably the funnest part of my time in Queens is something I can't tell y'all about that happened when we arrived at the hotel. Um, but the second funnest thing, which actually might be the most, uh, the thing that made me happiest is I was sitting next to him and spying on the conversation uh, behind me in the row and there was a woman, you're wearing a scarf and a pretty gray blue sweater and you were talking to your neighbor who you didn't know and you were saying, how did you decide to come here tonight and how did you hear about this? And so just neighborhood people were, were telling, oh, I saw the sign and I came last week and the, what did you say, the conversation was intelligent or? <laughs> no, no, yeah. And so uh, my, my, uh, my queen story is that uh, people in Queens seem awesome and they just talk to each other and they come out to literary readings in carriage houses and that's really cool, so. Um, I have a very favorable impression. Um, my book just came out a few months ago, so I'm still hawking it, and I'm going to read from it. 
and it's called Pull Me Under. It's, uh, I, I won't read too much. It's, uh, it's a story of a Japanese-American woman who, as a child in Japan, uh, murdered her school bully. And so uh, the novel jumps around a little bit in the beginning in terms of structure and point of view. Like, uh, I'll read to you the very first part in the book, which is like a tiny newspaper excerpt. Um, I'll, I'll read that now, and then I'll kind of fill you in on what happens next. So the first thing you see in the book is an excerpt from Kyoto Wow! Exclamation point, uh, which is the name of an English language news magazine in Japan, dated October 14, 1988. On a cloudless afternoon in the peaceful Shikoku city of Tokushima, 12-year-old Chizuru Akitani, Japanese-American daughter of acclaimed violinist and living national treasure Hiro Akitani, walked into the staff room at Motomanchi Elementary, covered with blood and clutching a letter opener. Panic swept the room as people assumed the sixth grader, known for her introspective nature, had seriously hurt herself. The English teacher, Miss Daniela Townsend, was the first to approach Chizuru. As she neared, the girl raised her palm and stilled the room with five words. This is not my blood. Okay, so that's the first thing you get in the book. <laughs> Cheery, right? Um, and I think, just for brevity's sake, I'll skip over. There's, um, the first chapter is from uh, Chizuru's point of view as she's in a, a basically like a Japanese juvie uh, where she comes of age. Uh, she's there from age 12 to age 20. And uh, she has her first sexual experience there, and she kind of she sees her estranged father a couple of times and becomes fully estranged from him. And then at the age of 20 is um, in Japan, you can't be a dual citizen. So uh, she she chooses her American citizenship and moves to the states and starts this whole new life as a college student. And then when we meet her again, she's a 36-year-old mother and wife, and no one in her life knows that she's murdered someone. Uh, and this is, the, most of the novel is from this perspective. It's a first-person, present point of view. The news of my father's second and final death arrives by FedEx. I push open the front door, and the smell of Sal's garlic marinara hits me in the face. That smells amazing, I call as I kick off my shoes in the entryway. I'm lucky, my husband gets off work by four o'clock every day and he likes to cook. Sal sticks his head out of the kitchen and waves a wooden spoon in his mouth. His dark hair is covered by a blue bandana. Lily sits on the couch with her skinny legs tucked to her chest, arms folded around her knees. My origami daughter. A long rectangular box lies between her and the curled-up cat. As he's aged, Bagel's fur has turned dark brown in spots, causing him to look more like a cinnamon roll every year. He flutters his eyes and goes back to sleep, unimpressed by my return. From Japan, Lily says, freeing her hands and picking up the box. She shakes it the way we do at Christmas and birthdays. Papers and something long like a ginormous chopstick. Dad wouldn't let me open it. What did you order? My appetite disappears like it's been vacuumed out. I sit next to Lily, kiss the top of her peach-scented head. She nuzzles my shoulder. She is 11, no longer a baby, but not yet a young woman, and there's no middle ground between the two. 
Being 11 means jumping from one state to the other at random. Some days are moments we encounter the curious, loving child, others the surly, apathetic preteen. I take the box from her and for the first time find myself wishing for one of her apathetic days. Red and green labels partially obscure the FedEx logo. The return address is in Japanese. On the packing slip, our address and Rio Silvestri appear in block print. I stand focusing on my name, the marked strokes of which seem to sharpen and rise off the surface of the box. This can't be right. I left Japan as Chizuru Akitani. As far as anyone in Japan should know, that is still my name. Chizuru gave up her Japanese citizenship. Rio Silvestri is the new me, the American. That's how it works. No one in America knows about Chizuru. No one in Japan knows about Rio. Where are you going? Lily asks. I've crossed the room to the stairs that lead to our bedrooms. I take the steps two at a time, the box clutched in one hand. Lily yells, open it here, I want to see. I stop and give her a look. It's addressed to me. My tone is sharper than I intend. She's about to whine, then her face goes stony. Lame, she declares, a word she knows I despise. She turns the television on. Hey, Sal calls from the kitchen. Remember what we said about attitude? Lily keeps her eyes on the screen, feigning interest in a commercial for male body wash. Normally, I'd ask her to acknowledge us like the parenting books advise, but I can't do it. I can't do anything until I know what I'm holding. I speed walk down the hall to our bedroom. Maybe it's age, maybe it's something else, but I'm not as excitable as I once was. The black organ, and this is something you hear about in the earlier section, she's got this kind of like physical manifestation of her rage that she can feel in her body. It sound, it, I think it comes out cooler in the book than I just said, but I don't know. Anyway, she calls it the black organ. Um, the black organ, soothed into submission by my running, retreated even further once Lily was born. It's still there, though, and I sense it now just behind my heart. Sal avoids triggering it, either instinctively or by luck, but Lily's the opposite. She knows exactly how to piss me off. She also knows that if I have to leave the room while we're arguing, she's won. But I'm happy to give her those victories. She will never see her mother out of control. Downstairs, Sal yells something to Lily that I can't hear. A second later, he calls, What are you stockpiling ninja stars, Re? I had to sign in three places before the guy would hand the box over. Sal doesn't know all of me. Maybe this is true of all husbands and wives. Surely there are inaccessible places in each of us. Places few would understand. In marriage, I've come to believe, is about finding someone who understands the right things without digging up the wrong ones. I've kept the promise I made to myself. Sal has never heard of Chizuru Akitani, the girl who snapped. I lock the door and grab Sal's beard-trimming scissors from the mug on the dresser. The lightest pressure splits the brown tape sealing the boxes. Sal sharpens these scissors along with the kitchen knives every sixth Sunday. He draws a pointy blade on his calendar to mark the dates. I lift the lid, which sucks upward the letter lying inside. A lawyer gives clumsy assurance in English. Mr. Akitani's suffrage was not lengthy. He died in peace. 
that it happened quickly. The lawyer manages to get the medical vocabulary right. Cardiac arrest. I push out a long breath and sink onto the bed. I'm not in trouble. My father died, that's all. I set the letter aside and from the box pick up a 10,000 yen note folded into a butterfly. I'm surprised he's hung on to it after all these years. I lift the butterfly's wings and let them settle back into place. Hiro didn't trust banks. This peculiarity, combined with his absent-mindedness, meant money all over the house. Once as a kid, I opened my origami box to find a stack of flat, smooth bills. I folded them into swans and placed them in the low alcove in the living room, reserved for sacred objects. For weeks, no one no noticed the equivalent of three grand sitting in plain sight. When our living national treasure, in private, my mom and I often referred to him using this preposterous title, which we knew he was secretly proud of, was in a good mood. He might hand me a wad pulled from a sack of rice or the shoe cabinet and say, look at this, a kid who's entertained by money without spending it. Of course, when I was older, desirous of comic books and gadgets, he never gave me enough to buy more than a sticky bun. I put the butterfly on top of the lawyer's letter and turned back to the box. Dividing it diagonally is the object Lily called a chopstick, my father's violin bow. I run a finger along the sm smooth Pernambuco wood. During the periods he was home with us in Tokushima on, my bre on break from the orchestra in Tokyo, cleaning the bow was my weekly chore. I'd spend an hour, far more time than necessary, coaxing rosin from between the stands of strands of Mongolian horsetail, polishing the pad and stick. He never said a word when I gave it back, spotless. As his trips grew longer and more frequent and he began spending full weeks at the Tokyo apartment, I'd sometimes leave a bit of wax on, perfect, on purpose to provoke an interaction. He got mad at my mom all the time, called his American wife my Western demon, but I had to work to get under his skin. If only I could raise his passion the way my mother did, measured against ambivalence, rage seemed a gift. But what's he done with the violin? It doesn't seem right to separate the bow from its instrument. In New York City, during my second and last childhood trip to the United States, I heard a fat man in a tux refer to my father as a super auditor like a chef whose sense of taste is so refined he can detect a dash of paprika in a gallon pot. It was true. Our living national treasure, or more officially, Juyo Muke Bonkazai Hojisha, preserver of important intangible cultural properties, was ultra-sensitive to sound and heard music in the strangest places. The truck that collected burnable trash on its Thursday dawn rounds, but not the non-burnable trash on, on Fridays. He heard a backbeat as my mother washed dishes, but he was equally sensitive to that which did not resonate, what he called sazameki, the din. The sound of my pen across the page sent him out of the room, but when my mom wrote, he relaxed. He assigned people musical intervals. Whenever I succeeded in irritating him, he whistled mine, the tritone or devil's interval, that sonic argument one heard from an ambulance. The space between my notes, he said, had driven men to fight, to ravage, to kill. Mine was the interval that could start a war. Thank you.
Thank you, Kelly Luz. Yeah. Um, I love that definition of marriage that Rio had. I think it was that your partner finds the good things and doesn't go looking for the bad things. Is that right? Something like that? Yeah. Hmm. Um, but this, this novel is amazing. Not only does it carry this line of suspense all through it with this woman who's like, has a life that, and a history that her husband and her daughter know nothing about. Um, but really, like, is it's just a wonderful story of like figuring out what defines who you are and who the people who are who are close to you. So, really great book. Um, all right, we got a third reader of the evening right now. It is Jason Diamond. Yes. Jason Diamond is the sports editor at RollingStone.com and founder of Volume One Brooklyn. His work has been published by the New York Times. It's like some small rag, whatever. BuzzFeed, Vulture, The New Republic, The Paris Review, Pitchfork, Esquire, Vice, and many other outlets. He was born in Cook County, Illinois, but currently lives in Brooklyn with his wife, his two cats, and his dog named Max. Wait, what are the cats named? What are the cats named? So just fix it now. What are their names? What Zoe and Spoons. Currently lives in Brooklyn with his wife, his two cats, Zoe and Spoon, and his dog named Max. We have we have a veterinarian in the audience, so we have to. I'm like literally okay. His memoir, Searching for John Hughes, was published in 2016 by William Moore Paperbacks. It's over here as well. It's this beautiful pink book. I think that's perfect for Valentine's Day if you ask me around and it's on the plane. Let's welcome Jason to the stage. Yeah. I'm tall. I'm a little taller. I got so much shit for that, for the no cats thing. Like. <laughs> Yeah, well, they I didn't actually get any sleep last night because they do this thing where they on the doorknob when I don't let them in because they just they just rub their faces on my beard while I'm trying to sleep. So I'm very tired because of my cats. So I'm angry. But I just they kind of run my house. So I just was like, I want to give my kind of silly, stupid dog some some love in the bio and cat lovers are not happy about it. <laughs> And I feel bad because I'm equal cat dog person. Um, anyways, I'm going to talk really quick about Queens because I love Queens. I come here a lot. I have a car and I drive here every chance I get. Um, but my two favorite Queens memories are one, when I first moved to Greenpoint in 2003, uh, which was a long time ago. Um, I would get drunk with my friend and we would walk from our apartment on Nassau and Sutton over the Pulaski Bridge. Is it Pulaski? Is that the bridge? And I would be like, oh my God, I'm in Queens. And I'd, all of a sudden, I'd, I'd, it'd get quiet every time I'd go, Queens, like in uh, Coming to America, because that's, that's a great movie. And then the other <laughs> is kind of on the border of Long Island City and Astoria. There's a pretty heavy Romanian population. And even though I'm from the, the, the group of Romanians that uh, were kicked out of Romania, because we're Jewish. Uh, spoiler alert, they didn't like us. I'm still, I still like weird Romanian meats. And there's a deli that uh, they serve all the sausages and it's delicious. And they, the first time I went, 
they serve bags. I'm sorry if you're vegetarian. I'm really sorry, but they serve bags of like, um, I, basically like Romanian chicharrones, but they're like really hot and oily and delicious. And they give it to you in this paper bag. And I went in there and they gave me the bag and I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. And I put my finger in there and it was so greasy that the entire bag just, <laughs> and, and I just kind of look at them and I'm like, I get another bag <laughs> like i don't feel like i should pay for this uh but i did anyway i paid for a second bag because i'm not going to argue with a bunch of very big romanian men and their tiny romanian grandmother who any of them could kill me um anyway so this is my book it's i like to just tell people it's a book about a formerly sad teen who turns into a sad adult and moves to new york and through it all the common Link is he's obsessed with John Hughes movies, um, so much so that he, being I, tried to write John Hughes's biography. Um, and it's comedy, total comedy. There's a lot of sad parts, but I'm going to read a funnier part about bars because I love bars and it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> Life for my first few years in New York was largely lived in bars. Everything else was my job I didn't like, which I did to make money while I wasn't trying to write. There was Enid's on the border of Williamsburg and Kingland Tavern deep down on Nassau Avenue, both in Greenpoint. The former was a newer spot with pinball and good-looking young bartenders with perfect hair who hardly cared to talk to you. The latter was an old-school haunt inhabited by a mix of local Polish and Italian residents and metalheads with an old art deco bar and also a bartender who also hardly cared to talk to you. In the city, I had Odessa with its weird country western theme and a diner next door serving pierogies 24-7. And if that was too crowded, then I'd go across the street to Niagara with its Joe Strummer mirror outside and weird mix of East Village yuppies and cross punks who drink for free because they knew the bartender. I went to these bars on a weekly basis. I liked the music, I liked the prices, and I really liked the people, both the ones I knew and the ones I didn't. I enjoyed the conversations I had and the ones I could eavesdrop on. Saw people from bands I like and writers whose faces I recognized from profiles and magazines I wanted to write for. I like to go to those bars with company or just sit alone, feeling like an adult with my Jameson neat that I'd sip slowly to make sure it looks as if I were truly savoring life when I was in fact trying my best to stretch out my dollars. They were all good spots, but one bar in particular Royal Oak, with its handsome oxblood banquets and wallpaper that looked as if it had been stripped off the inside of a Parisian brothel from the 1920s, was the one where I spent the most money during that time. I'd park myself on the bar and make friends for life with total strangers whose names I'd forget by the time the sun came up. I had these fleeting ideas that maybe one day there'd be something written about the history of Brooklyn in the immediate years after 9-11, and somewhere my name would appear in a footnote about that writer who used to hang out there before he had some success, but was ultimately more influential than profitable. I had a good run at Royal Oak, joking it was my cheers, but eventually, like all good things in New York, it changed. The situation started going downhill there for a few months into 2005. It had once bred fun times, drinking with strangers who had big paychecks to blow on drinks for people they didn't know, 
dancing to songs you shouldn't be able to dance to, like Danzig's mother, at three in the morning with a bunch of bike punks, models, and various other New Yorkers. Soon, people who had jobs on Wall Street or in law firms started showing up in cabs, ordering Red Bulls and vodkas, and making the people who had been going there for years feel as if they were in some nightmare scenario where they were drinking alongside their childhood bullies in a place that once felt safe. It felt as though the jerks were taking over the clubhouse. I kept telling myself that eventually they'd move on and find another bar, but on a night that was technically deep spring but still felt like winter, I knew the bar and I were breaking up. Last night, I dreamt I went to Royal Oak again, and it wasn't filled with douchebags. I joked with a bartender who I knew well enough to guess he'd catch the reference to Rebecca, or at least Hitchcock's movie version, and totally get it. We talked about books and movies when he had downtime and the bar wasn't packed. I knew he was from Kansas, bored with Brooklyn, and was considering moving out to Los Angeles to try a break in the film business. He just didn't know in what area. I think I'm good looking enough to be an actor, but I'd sell for being a writer. <laughs> now I only got a, force, a, a smile that felt forced. He walked to the other end of the bar and slowly began washing the same pint glass until he could find somebody else to talk with. I could feel my beer getting warm as I sat there waiting for my company. I finished my second pint just as Michael finally showed up, late as usual. We'd been friends for a few months at that point, bonding over free drinks we normally couldn't afford at a fancy new cocktail bar during a holiday party for the coffee shop we both worked at. He was tall and handsome. He look, looked and dressed like a Blaine from Pretty in Pink or a Jake Ryan from Sixteen Candles, but thought and acted like the give-no-fucks type I'd always been down, drawn to his friends. Michael wrote, but I wasn't sure if he wanted to be a writer or not, because when you're under 25 and living in New York... It's really difficult to commit to anything, be it a job, a relationship, or an apartment. He talked about going back to school to become a historian, but wasn't sure that was what he wanted to do either. Instead, we both worked at a failing patisserie for a woman who we'd only see when she'd come by to take money out of the register to buy drugs. It wasn't a long-term plan, but neither of us could figure out what we wanted to do, and we bonded over that. There's something reassuring about feeling like you're going nowhere in New York City with a friend who feels the same way. At least you're going nowhere together. Want to go sit in the cocaine nook? Asked Michael as he looked around the bar and shook his head, no doubt as put off as I was by the number of guys wearing tucked-in polo shirts and talking of stocks. The area we dubbed the cocaine nook was a little room in the hallway between the main bar and the room where the DJ usually set up. By 10 or 11, it would be filled with good-looking people who helped the little hole in the wall live up to its name. They took advantage of the tucked-away settings and blind eyes from the bartenders who knew it was handy to have the stuff around. But before that, from happy hour until the party crowds showed up, it was the quietest place to sit and talk, and you didn't even need to do drugs. So I think I'm going to start writing about the suburbs, I said as I pushed a little plastic baggie that had been left on the leather seat from the night before onto the floor. Michael looked mildly interested, like the John Cheever. Not like that, I told him. Something weirder that I'd started working on a long time ago. Some stories I'd written when I was a teen. I was thinking of revisiting them. I bought some movie scripts from that guy who sells them from that old bus the parks near NYU. You know him? I bought The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Adventures in Babysitting. All John Hughes movies, Michael said. 
I corrected him as I set up to get another round. No, he didn't have anything to do with adventures and babysitting. People tend to think that because it's about teens in the Chicago suburbs and the soundtrack sounds like songs he'd pick. I came back with beer and shots the bartender had given me as a buyback and told Michael how readers had started following my little blog a little bit more. It was a stupid nothing that I'd started out of boredom, but I had a handful of readers and that, to me, was something. My post that broke down the design of Ferris Bueller's bedroom with the big British flag and posters of post-punk industrial bands like Cabaret Voltaire and Killing Joke had started a lively conversation in the comment section among six different people, while my piece trying to make the case for 1991's Curly Sue not being as horrible of a film as people made it out to be didn't do too hot. I focused a lot on Hughes and other teen movies from the 1980s and even some from the 90s. But I really took an interest in talking about the suburbs that spawned so many of those films. I'm going to skip. Who's talking? We're drinking. Royal Oak, remember? <clears throat> talking, 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 talking. Uh, so we keep talking about John Hughes movies, which is a big part of this book. Um, he wrote National Lampoon's Vacation. He didn't direct it. I doubt he would have asked Lindsay Buckingham to have been involved if he had. I told Michael. Whatever, the point is, I've never seen a book on John Hughes. Maybe you could write a book of criticism or like his biography or something. This is, yeah. A biography, I snorted. I want to write stories. I want to write literature. I threw back the last of my whiskey in exaggerated motion. It didn't dawn me then that I was the worst person in that bar for that minute. A uh, biography is writing. You research a bunch of stuff and basically transcribe what you've researched into your words. Like I said, when you're 23 and living in New York, it's hard to commit to anything. You want to be creative, but you also really want to drink and have sex. You'll do whatever is necessary to pay the rent, but you just want things to happen. And it didn't sound as though much really happened by spending your time on a biography. I wanted to write and to be a hotshot who got invited to parties in incredible Upper East Side apartments with people who took off their glasses, hold them in their hands, and wave them around it like a wand while they say really heavy things about the world. And eventually I wanted people to throw those parties for me in my books. A biography just didn't sound as sexy when you're 23 and you think you're sexy, or you at least want people to think you are. Of course, you do and think a lot of stupid things when you're 23. So this train of thought was completely invalid and silly of me. That's obvious now, but didn't even cross my mind at that very second. As I stood up to leave, I realized how drunk I'd gotten in the cocaine nook. We were on the way to some party some girl we both knew was throwing in the loft apartment she lived in by the water. Her landlords had sold the building and told her she had until the end of the month to leave, so she sent out an email to her friends with the subject line, Burn this motherfucker down. We were going to buy beers and walk there, but first, I wanted to go and look at all the people dancing to the music I didn't really like in the room next door. I told Michael I felt as though I had nothing in common with the bar's clientele anymore. That it was just a bunch of guys with a lot of money who dress in vintage shirts, purchase at expensive boutiques. But they were really just posers. Never wanted to come back. You sound like you're in high school, he said to me. Who calls people posers when they're adults? <laughs> He laughed as he walked outside to go smoke. I was going to follow him out the door, but a familiar song came on. Holland, 1945 by Neutral Milk Hotel. I stood there for a few seconds, watching all the peop happy people dance, gyrate and jump around, as though Jesus had possessed him at some deep south tent revival. 
This song is about Anne Frank, you morons! I tried yelling over the fuzzy and upbeat indie folk song. Nobody heard me since they were all too busy enjoying themselves. Fuck this place. I yelled as I, I should have yelled that. I yelled as I walked out the door. I'm never coming back. Thanks. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.